Amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, go and open up with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Uh, we'll be looking at the whole chapter this morning, but our faithful and true student ministry director, Chris Taunton, has already read part of the scriptures for us. And that way you can kind of digest it a little bit and spend some time with it until we get to it. So if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, you can open up uh, to page 1240, 1240 in the Pew Bible. And uh, if you don't have your own Bible, you can take that home with you uh, today. As you're opening there, getting ready uh, to, to read and hear the Word of God, I just want to remind everyone here today that next Sunday is our High Attendance Sunday. And so we're excited about that. I hope you'll plan to invite someone here. I know uh, some Sunday school classes are having brunch, some, some are going to lunch afterwards, some are doing different things. So I hope that you'll come, you'll be a part, you'll invite someone, and uh, we look forward to worshiping and having a good day next week as we prepare to sort of launch out into the fall. We want to make sure that we're doing all that we can with all that God's given us to reach Gadsden for Christ. That's our goal. It's what we want to see happen, to happen and what we want to see accomplished. So I hope and pray that you'll we'll take that seriously and that we'll, we'll give it a real solid go next Sunday. If you have your Bibles open, won't you go and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. We'll be reading uh, verses 21 through 38. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to you. Beginning in verse 21. <clears throat> After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why, they said this, why he said this to him. And some thought that because G Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews. So now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow 
till you have denied me three times. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word today. And God, we pray that we'll be changed by it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In recent years, in the last few years, the world, and especially our country, has really become obsessed with goats. Now, not the livestock, not the livestock, but what you have happening right now are a lot of arguments about who is the greatest of all time, G-O-A-T, the goat. And so we often hear these arguments about who is the greatest of all time, who's the greatest basketball player. Michael Jordan, or could it be LeBron James? Who's the greatest golfer? Is it Jack Nicklaus, or could it be Tiger Woods? And on and on and on it goes. Now, a lot of your answers to those questions, right, might depend on what generation you're from, right? Those, those of us who saw some of those folks in their prime tend to think they're the greatest of all time. But over and over and over again, this question, this, this, uh, this issue of who is the goat comes up over and over and over again and here in our society in our culture we are to say the least obsessed with greatness we think about greatness a lot what does it mean to be great is it success is it notoriety is it fame what is it that defines greatness for us as christians we know as christians we know that what the world sees as great is not always great in the eyes of God. And the world's path to greatness is always not always the path to greatness in this world. In fact, if you look at the list of some of the greatest uh, of folks in different sports and different situations, oftentimes they were miserable. Oftentimes they might have been great in one area, but not so much in others. Today we look at one of the defining moments in the life of Christ. It's where he washes the disciples' feet. He does something that was radically unexpected of him, something that was radically different than what people were used to. He washed the disciples' feet. As we work through John chapter 13, I want us to understand greatness from this passage. Let's talk about what true greatness is. I'm going to show you, first of all, two negative examples, and then finally, the ultimate example of true greatness. Here's the first point this morning. First thing I want to mention to you and show you in this passage is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a faulty understanding of greatness, which is works-based greatness. Works-based greatness. That's our first point this morning is works-based greatness. Now, we see in verses 1 through 5 that Jesus begins to wash the disciples' feet. He gets up after supper and he removes his outer garments. He ties a towel around his waist. He takes on the clothing of a servant. If you were to read sort of the way that people talked about their slaves and servants, oftentimes in the ancient world, oftentimes one of the things they would degrade the most was the way they dressed. And here Jesus is taking on the garb of a servant. And Peter wants nothing of it. Listen to what is said in verse 6. Listen to Peter's initial response. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Lord, do you wash my feet? You see, this is a group of young men. I, 
I talk about this all the time. One of the great miracles of the gospel and one of the things that I, I think is one of the greatest signs of the gospel is Jesus got a group of 20 and 30-something men by the end of their lives to work together to accomplish something and not care who got the credit. If you've ever been around 20 and 30-something men, if you've ever been around groups of men like that, they tend not to want to show honor to each other. And so the disciples wouldn't have even dreamed of washing one another's feet, much less letting their leader wash their feet. Peter expresses this, Lord, you would wash my feet? And then Jesus presses on him. In, in verse 7, Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I love Peter's response. This is typical Peter, verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, give me a triple portion of the washing, Lord, if that's what it takes to have a part or a share in you. And then what happens next with Peter in this chapter is telling about Peter's mindset. Peter, uh, Jesus begins to try to make clear to the disciples that he's going to be killed. And, and that's part of what he's alluding to there in the passage we just read when he says, you do not understand now, but soon you will understand. What Jesus is saying is, right now I'm serving you by washing your feet. But soon, after I do what I'm about to do, you're going to really understand why I washed your feet. Because this is nothing compared to me being the suffering servant, the one who's going to die for you. And so he's pointing Peter to the cross. He's showing Peter the way the cross is going to transform things. And then they, they talk with one another again in verses 36 through 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. What does Peter say? Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This afternoon or tomorrow or later this week, I want to encourage you to go to the book of Acts. And in the early chapters of the book of Acts, I want you to go there and I want you to read Peter's sermons. I want you to hear the way that Peter was the mouthpiece of God in so many ways, one of the leaders of the apostles. I want you to see how Christ and his crucifixion and the giving of the Spirit transformed Peter. What Jesus is saying to Peter is, you cannot follow me now. In other words, you're going to betray me now in your own strength in your own power, in your own strength, in your own power, it makes you uncomfortable for me to wash your feet. You think that you will lay down your life for me, but in reality, one day you will follow me, just not now. And we know Peter eventually was martyred. He did follow in the footsteps of Christ. But what made the difference? It was the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the gospel, brothers and sisters. You see, Peter is trying to work his way to greatness. It's precisely why he draws the sword and cuts off the ear of the man as he comes to try to get Jesus. He's able then to try to fight for the Lord, but he's not able to follow the Lord where the Lord is going, and that's to the cross. And eventually, Peter betrays Jesus. You see, Peter is having his understanding of what Christ is doing and what it means to follow Christ revolutionized by Jesus' grace revolutionized by the cross 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. In both of these situations, what Peter is missing is the cross and his own need for it. He's trying to achieve greatness through works. It's works-based greatness. And so this man who will one day be this great preacher of the grace of Jesus Christ, transformed by the gospel here, is focusing on what he can do, not on what Christ can do through him. And this morning, I ask you the very same question. Are you focusing on what you can do, on what you can achieve, on how righteous you can be? Or are you focused on what Christ has done for you? Are you worried about what you can do to be great? Are you worried about what Jesus has already done for you? The greatness and glory of Christ. It's not all bad. The way we teach our kids to say the blessing. God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. By His hands we are fed. Thank you, God, for daily bread. It's not a bad way to pray, right? God is great. And he's the only great one. I'm not great, and God is good, and I'm not good, but I can receive those things from him. Just like every day, every day, my parents bring me my daily bread or my daily chicken nuggets or whatever you're giving your kids, my daily pizza. God is the one who can give us goodness and greatness. Here's the second attempt. Not only do we see Peter attempting works-based greatness, but we see something even more sinister happening in this passage. We see devilish greatness devilish greatness satanic greatness and obviously we see this in the person of Judas the son of perdition Judas look with me in verses 21 through 30 after saying these things Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified truly truly I say to you one of you will betray me and the disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. Now, Peter, by this point in Jesus' ministry, must have learned his lesson about speaking out loud all the time. So instead of speaking out loud, he motions to John. This is the first time, we assume it's John, obviously, this disciple whom Jesus loved. It's the first time in John's gospel he's mentioned. And based on what we can tell, it seems like this is John's way of referring to himself. Now, some of you might think it was sort of, I don't know, maybe a little prideful for him to call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved but it seems to me like John is saying that really the only thing I had to offer was the fact I was loved by Christ he's, he's just attaching himself I, I was loved by Jesus and that's what matters about who I am even though I'm writing this gospel but he motions to John to ask Jesus who it is and Jesus says the one to whom I will give this morsel or this bread now oftentimes we see this morsel of bread that Jesus dips just simply as a way to signify to his inner circle, this is the one who will betray me, right? We think that maybe Jesus is just giving a sign, but I want you to understand something, that, that as they're taking this Passover meal, it was not uncommon. In fact, it was part of this Passover meal for the host of the table to take bread and to dip it in what we might call a sop, kind of a mixture of different things. And then oftentimes, the, the host of the feast would take a morsel of bread and dip it and give it to someone who was like a guest of honor. It was actually a way of signifying honor and love for someone. And so here we see Judas receiving the last great act of love of his life. Love from the one he would betray. Love from the one he knew 
who knew he would betray him. Love from Jesus Christ. In other words, I I believe Judas is being given one more opportunity to, to turn to the Lord, to abandon his plot. And yet, as he receives the love of Christ, he rejects it. And at that very moment, the Bible teaches us, Satan entered Judas. You see, Judas had missed who Jesus is with such vivid clarity and has given himself over to the work of the devil. The devil had given him the idea to betray Christ and now he is acting on it. And then the Bible says, I want you to hear what it says. As Jesus gave him this morsel, Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. People are wondering what that meant. Very few of the disciples understood that Judas was to be the one who betrayed him, except perhaps John and Peter. Then verse 30, So after receiving the morsel of bread, rather than running to Christ, he went immediately outside. He left the presence of the light of the world. He left the presence of the one who gave into the world to penetrate the darkness. He left the presence of the very spark that burns the stars. He left the presence of the morning star of God, that agent of creation, the one who loved him, the one who extended his grace and love to him one last time. He left the presence of the light of the world, and it was night. It was night. It was a night of darkness over Judas, and it was a night of darkness over the world as Jesus made his way to go to the cross, as mankind's machinations led to the slaughter of the Son of God. Judas's sort of attempt at greatness is one that hates God, that hates His plan, and always ironically produces one's own undoing. Here, Satan, working with Judas, and Judas, working with Satan, thinks that finally, whatever problem it was that Judas had with Christ, and perhaps he shared the problems that the Pharisees had, perhaps he was just hungry for money. Perhaps he was just hungry for money. And we consider the, the irony that he, he wanted the 300 pieces of silver for the nard, for the precious ointment that Mary uses on Jesus, but he settles for 30 pieces of silver to sell the Lord out. Perhaps he was just money hungry. But whatever it was, what we recognize is his desire for that blinded him to God's light in such a way that he was given over to the devil, that the devil took over Judas and worked with him to bring about this sinful situation. Now, that's not to say that God wasn't simultaneously sovereign over these situations. We saw the way the Bible and John sort of constructs the way these things work last week. If you look the last section of John chapter 12, you see that this is not something that God didn't anticipate, that God is not sovereign over. Yet at the same time, here Judas is consciously choosing, making free decisions to betray the Son of God. It is a desire for a devilish greatness. And yet the devil will always and only use you. Because what happens? As soon as Judas betrays Jesus, what does he do? He kills himself. He's got no life or light left in this world. You know, the devil will always promise you things that will make you great or make you wonderful, and yet yet Judas chose it, and what happened to him? He ended in hopelessness 
and despair. And so there's devilish greatness, there's workspace greatness, there's self-centered greatness is kind of rooted in all those things, a desire to make oneself great, and yet Jesus gives us something so beautiful, something that the disciples who he called clean couldn't see and something that the unclean disciple couldn't see, and that was the true greatness of Jesus Christ that's exemplified in two things here in this passage, humility and love. What is our third point? True Greatness, true greatness revolves around humility and love. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for I am, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You know, there's a little rivalry. There's got to be. You see it come out in parts of the Bible. And here what Jesus is saying is he's teaching them to be humble. They, they would ask questions like, God, which one of us is going to sit at your right hand? And others, Jesus would say to others that you, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna go with me to my death eventually. And they would say, well, what about John? You know, kind of thing. There's a little rivalry. There's a little factionism that goes on in the body of the disciples. And yet what Jesus does is he humbles himself before them and says, if I'm going to wash your feet, don't you think you ought to wash one another's feet? You see, any disciple in that room, any in that disciple in that room would have been more than willing to wash the Lord's feet. They might have been a little uncomfortable with it, but if Jesus had said, Peter, I want you to go over here and wash my feet, they would have been all for it. That's not the test of true servanthood, right? The test of true servanthood is not whether you will do something ser servile to someone who you deem to be greater than yourself, right? The true test of humility and the true test of greatness is whether or not you will humble yourself and do something to serve someone who you see as less than you or equal to you. And Jesus is telling them that they ought to wash one another's feet. And I don't think that necessarily on into this society necessarily means a literal washing of feet, but that we ought to serve one another. Jesus is true servant, a true servant. And then he also goes on and begins to make the gospel clear to Peter and others, showing that his servanthood is leading to his embrace of self-sacrifice. He is going to the cross. Brothers and sisters, we do not value humility enough. We do not value humility enough. We do not value serving others enough we, we we do not follow in the footsteps of jesus at the level that we ought to in fact so often what we want to do is be totally willing to serve people who we think do deserve it and unwilling to serve people we think don't deserve it now what's ironic there for us as christians you're one who doesn't deserve, who doesn't deserve all that Jesus has done for you. And what Jesus says is, my servanthood of you ought to transform your servanthood of others. My humility toward you ought to transform your humility toward others. Christians ought to be a humble people. Now listen, I understand. It's not an easy sin to be done with. But ought we not to be striving 
towards serving others. I want to really focus in on the last thing Jesus says here. Verses 31 through 35. True greatness is defined by humility and true greatness is defined by love. Verses 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews... So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, Jesus says, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus loves you, therefore you ought to love one another. Jesus expressed his love even to Judas, therefore we ought to love one one another. But this verse that I really want to focus on here is what Jesus has said. What does a Christian look like? What does someone who acts like Jesus, Christian means little Christ, right? What does a Christian look like? Francis Schaeffer wrote a little book years ago, a little pamphlet almost, called The Mark of a Christian. And in it, he talked about all the ways that Christians over the decades have tried to distinguish themselves from the world. And even in our day today, Christians try to do that in different ways. You might hear a Christian say, we're a Christian family, so we only listen to Christian radio. I'm a Christian, so I've got a Jesus fish sticker on the back of my car. I'm a Christian, and so here, are the, here is the list of things that I don't do. Here, I'm a Christian, and so here is the list of things I do. How about you? There are all sorts of ways that Christians try to distinguish themselves. And in different denominations and in different eras and in different places, you have different ways that Christians have tried to distinguish themselves. Yet Jesus gave us a singular defining mark for his church. They, the world around us, will know that you are Christians by the love you have for one another. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know, so often I find myself on airplanes or I find myself in, in taxi cabs or Ubers or whatever else, or I find myself meeting people even outside Gadsden, and when I tell them what I do, they say, boy, I feel sorry for you because I've heard that Christians can be some of the meanest people in the world. And if you want to know why Christianity is dying in the United States of America, that is why. That is why. Because we are not known for our love. Now, in so many ways we are, but in so many ways we are not. Nothing, nothing troubles my soul as a pastor like the trouble I feel when I meet people who claim the name of Christ and hate one another. Hate one another. Who don't show love to one another. Who don't show grace and mercy to one another. Who sit home and judge other Christians. Who when they see people out in town who are fellow Christians, they don't demonstrate love to one another. Brothers and sisters, it breaks my heart to see us throwing away the greatest tool we have to reach Gadsden for Christ, to reach North America for Christ. Jesus gave us love. 
Jesus gave us love. We can have all the high attendance Sundays and reach weeks and everything else that we want, but we will not make significant inroads as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ until what defines us most is our love for one another. Our love for one another. Humility and love. Humility and love is what defines true greatness. Now what... What would happen in the world? What would happen in the world if instead of flexing how good we are at this or demonstrating how good we are at that or harumphing about how good we are morally and how bad others are? What if instead of trying to fight the world, what if we chose to love one another and Love the world. What if we chose to let our church be a place that was defined entirely by love and that love spilled over? Now, sometimes love is hard. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes we have to call people out on sin. There's difficulties. But all of those things must be defined by love. I ask you this question today. Are you defined by true greatness? And here's the reality. It's not something you work for. It's not something the devil can give you. It's not something you can give yourself. It's something that Jesus Christ can only give. And so if you're looking at your life and you're looking at your heart and you say, I have such a hard time. I've been trying for years and years and years, but I just can't manage to be humble and I just can't manage to love others. Maybe, just maybe, maybe perhaps it's because you need to know Jesus for the first time. You've been working all these years. What freedom there is in knowing you don't have to be try to be great for Jesus to accept you. He accepts you and makes you great through love and humility. In fact, Christ was driven to the cross. He was nailed to the cross. And it was not Roman soldiers. It was not the devil. It was not Judas that put him there or held him there. It was love. And it was humility that sent Jesus to the cross. And he, through his humility, received the name that is above all names. And the throne that is above all thrones. And through his death on the cross, through his humility, through his love, he now offers you the opportunity to be free from the rat race. To be free from trying to prove yourself. To be free from holding grudges. To be free from all those things. And to step out in love and humility into the light, the glorious light of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Judas walked into the night, and today you can walk out of it by God's grace and His grace alone. I want to offer you an invitation today. If you've never trusted Jesus for the first time, even now He stands arms open wide in humility and in love to receive sinners. And you may say, I'm too bad, or I've tried too hard. Some of you might say, I'm too good. There's nothing that Christ's grace can't overcome. Second of all, second of all, you may be a Christian and say, Pastor, I've not lived according to these things like I should. This invitation is open to you. Finally, you may be looking for a church home. I'd love to talk to you today about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus and we thank you for his gospel, and oh God, we thank you for his grace. And God, even now we ask you, would you move among us? Father, would you help us to grow closer to you? And God, if there's anyone here who's resisting your grace and resisting your love, 
God, I pray that they would humble themselves beneath your cross today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.